I trust no moment is wasted, even in opportunities to greet each other and to be reminded that there are other Christians who are pressing on, and there are Christians all over this community, all over this valley, and all around the world who are walking alongside of us as we pursue the mission of our Savior and taking the gospel to people around us who do not yet know Him or His forgiveness and I trust it's an encouragement just to be here. It is to us. It is to me. And um, I'm encouraged each and every Lord today. Come back and uh, always rest well with thoughts of uh, the blessing of being with God's people. And Renee and I pray each Saturday evening uh, as we pray together as a family at our mealtime on Saturday evenings that God would bless our time with our spiritual family as we gather with the people and always are encouraged to thank the Lord on Sunday afternoons for the answers to those prayers and uh, what a blessing it is to hear you sing and to join with you in singing. All those things are just a critical part of the encouragement we need day in and day out to press on and to be faithful so that we might join like the Apostle Paul in saying we have run the race, we have been faithful, we've continued. And uh, that's not something that comes naturally to us to remain faithful. It is a work of grace and part of the work of grace is accomplished through God's people encouraging us. So Glad to be with you today. I do have one thing I wanted to bring to your attention, two things that I need to bring to your attention before we dive into our scriptures this morning and spend some time studying what the word of God has for us. Uh, First of all, we need to be in special prayer this morning for the Weeby family. Louis Weeby died last night, and uh, that is Richard uh, Levon Sawatsky and Maxine Hoflinger's dad. Um, We had been praying for their family. They've been going back and forth to Bakersfield. He was actually out of the hospital and into a care home and doing... Um, reasonably well, uh, at least appeared that way that he was on the mend. Uh, yesterday, uh, things took a turn for the worse. And then last evening, he went from this life into life eternal in the presence of his Savior. And so we need to be praying for their family. This will be a difficult week uh, as they make plans. And um, uh, obviously a very difficult Mother's Day uh, for their mom and uh, his wife. Richard mentioned to me this morning on the phone that they were blessed. Uh, Levon and Maxine and their mom were all with Mr. Weeby last night. Um, on those, in those last hours, they were there around the bed encouraging him and uh, talking with him. And I know these last three weeks have been very difficult. And at the same time, they've been a huge encouragement for their family. So let's be praying for them as uh, they grieve, as those with hope, and as they prepare for life after dad. And uh, I know that that is something that you can join them in helping them through prayer um, and comfort. So wanted to make sure you're aware of that. Thank you for your prayers and continue to pray for the Grunau family as well. Um, Susie's dad went home to be with the Lord last week. And so uh, services were this week and we're just thankful for the testimony of grace in their lives. And uh, continue to pray for them and uphold them and comfort and encourage them uh, in the days, weeks and months ahead. And if you know others, I think that it would be wise for us to think more often of those who have lost loved ones. Um, So much of a struggle for a heavenly mindset that will not wallow in the grief, but be eager for the expectation of seeing Christ. And um, just encourage those who are even suffering today with the loss of moms and uh, remembering their mom, that uh, you'd be encouraged by God's grace and be comforted by God's grace today. Okay, so that's one thing that I needed to mention that I forgot to in the flurry of announcements that we started with. And uh, that's something that's very important. In fact, let's just pause and let's pray for the Weeby family 
and then we'll continue. Father, thank you for the work of the gospel, the miraculous providence of the gospel in the Weeby family. You saved Mr. Weeby, and you have now brought him into your presence. You have not looked upon his sin. You have not counted his transgressions against him. But rather, you have punished your own son. And you have granted, you have granted your son's righteousness to Mr. Weeby. And now the fullness of that has been known as he is in your presence. We're grateful for that. And yet we pray for those who are here who are grieving the loss of such a critical cornerstone of a family. We pray for Maxine and for Levon and their families and the extended family that will all be coming into town this week. That you would be magnified through this. That his life would be an opportunity to reflect on your goodness, on your grace, and on those fruits of grace that were seen in him. And so we lift them up before you as a part of our, our family here. May we love and comfort them and may we join them in bearing the burden of such grief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One other announcement that's important for our church life together, I wanted to make sure that you knew about. Uh, we had a members meeting uh, March 31st, I believe, was our last members meeting. We have another one coming up at the end of June. And uh, at our last meeting, we talked about the potential for additional pastoral team members here at Grace Church. We're not entirely sure what the Lord has for us, but there are growing needs and uh, things that are being untouched pastorally, uncared for pastorally, and the burden has been growing on David and I in particular as we carry on life as pastors. And so we have begun the process and we are beginning the process of examining whether or not the Lord would be adding another pastoral team member to our church family. Um, we are going to be getting that process formally next Sunday night. Uh, and I would invite you to be a part of that, no matter what your relationship is to our church family. There is a young man who has been trained at the Master's Seminary, who actually was here recently because of my voice issues, Nathan Williams, who we are going to begin examining as a potential for coming alongside of us and caring for the flock here at Grace Church. And I tell you this for a couple of reasons. One, I want you to know about it. Uh, there's not any kind of secrecy in our leadership. That's not at all what we've been called to as pastors and as elders and leaders. Um, so we want you to know. And I also want you to join us in praying. And we desperately need God's wisdom through this process. This may not be the time for additional pastoral help. This may not be the person for additional pastoral help. Uh, but we are grieved and concerned for you to be cared for in a way that would represent and would reflect what we've been taught to do from the pastoral epistles and from other portions of our Bible. So please join us in praying that we would have wisdom as we examine Nathan. Um, the process is going to be a very unique one, probably one that you have not seen before. Um, for three Lord's Day evenings at six o'clock here in the theater, we are going to publicly examine Nathan. Um, and he signed up for this. Can you believe that? Um, we're going to publicly examine Nathan, and here's how this is going to work out. Starting next week, May 17th, 6 p.m., here in the theater, we're going to have a, a, a setup where we can um, interact with Nathan as a pastoral team. Our pastors in training, as well as our uh, pastors who serve in that role, Dave Muxlow, David Morris, and myself, are going to be reviewing and questioning and examining Nathan's theological positions. 
Uh, we want to see if, in fact, his theology matches what we believe the scriptures teach. Nothing is taken for granted because of our trust in Nathan and his orthodoxy, nor in his education at the Master's Seminary, or before that, Bob Jones University. Um, those things are all a part of his heritage, but none of those things assume that his theology is in line with the scripture. So we'll examine him. Our objective is allow the pastoral team and our church family to hear his biblical defense of his theology. In two weeks beyond that, the last week of May, we'll come back again. He'll be here again. He'll teach in different venues each Lord's Day morning, be examined on the Lord's Day evening. 6 p.m. Lord's Day evening, we'll examine his philosophical approach to the church. And so what we believe drives how we do what we do. And so the mindset behind his ministry philosophy is very important to whether or not the Lord is going to bring him here or not. So we'll examine him. Again, you are welcome to be a part of this, to observe it. And uh, eventually we will even open up some of these discussions to you for questions that you would have as a part of what goes on here at Grace Church. The third meeting will be in the middle of June, June 14th. We will meet with Nathan. He'll actually teach that morning here in our worship service. Uh, preach to us, and then we'll have another examination on Lord's Day evening at 6 o'clock, and that will be his practical, the practical functions of ministry that he will be overseeing. And if, if this is all brand new to you, we are approaching this as a pastor for ministry development. Primary focus will be on students, college, high school, junior high students, as well as gender-specific ministries, which include women and men. Of course, we don't think there's any other genders that he would be specifying in his pastoral role. <laughs> Talk about stating the obvious. All right. And uh, insulting your intelligence. Um, those are some of the roles that we see as desperately needing pastoral oversight and care. And of course, our job as pastors is not to professionally do the ministry. It's to train, lead by example, and come alongside of God's people as they do the work of the ministry. And we love the organic nature of what we do here. We love it that we don't yet have a formal women's ministry, but there are women meeting in Starbucks and in homes and, and at, at tea houses, praying together, caring for one another. That's exactly what the church is to be doing. And yet we want for these uh, opportunities to care for the body, to develop and to grow, and we need more equippers, really, is what we need. And so we're praying about this. We're asking the Lord to give us direction, whether Nathan is the guy, whether this is the time, and I wanted you to know about that. So Sunday evening next will be our first examination time with Nathan. And of course, we're pursuing all the practical realities of what it would mean to bring someone here and to care for their needs um, so that they can give themselves entirely to the ministry work that is our church. And so all of that is in process as well. And so we ask you to pray for us. And uh, if you have questions or concerns, we're wide open to hear those. And uh, if you need clarification, we'd love to talk with you about this okay so be praying about that and uh, the future of our church someone has said that it is not common that a church of our size would have three um, supported pastoral staff members and that's that's very true i'm more and more convinced that the reason that that's not normal is not because more churches don't have that capacity but because churches do not view pastoral ministry correctly and if we're going to care for the flock and actually give ourselves to the needs of the individual believers in our flock, it takes an immense amount of time and effort. And uh, so we're desperately 
looking for the Lord to not only raise up and develop leaders from within, which we're actively pursuing, but also to bring well-rounded and already trained equippers who can join us in that work. Okay? So I want you to know about that. Third thing that is important for you to know about that just came out of our pastoral meeting this last week is we are praying through and considering with um, great excitement the opportunity to support Josiah Grauman in the new work here in L.A., the Expositors Institute, which will be um, one of the very few um, expository training seminaries, Bible training schools for Hispanic pastors, for Spanish-speaking pastors. And uh, we're thrilled about what we hear about that ministry, what we know about that ministry. We're thrilled about what we know about Josiah. And so you can be praying for us. We'll also talk about that in our member meeting on June 28th. And uh, that'll be a part of that meeting as well as um, a final recommendation on Nathan Williams after the examination process. Okay? So those are things that are important to our church life. And I don't know of any other time to do that than now and uh, to let you know about those. And uh, if you have questions, if you need updates, let us know. And we'll be sure to facilitate that. Also, um, by way of information, all of our pastoral team meetings, are the minutes for all those meetings are online. You can see any of them. You can see what we meet about, what we talk about, what's on our, what's on our table as we decide and think about the leadership of our church. And so we welcome you to look at it if you want to look at it, ask questions, and uh, bring concerns if you have concerns. Matthew chapter 10. Let's take your Bibles and get there to Matthew chapter 10. We'll continue our morning by really the highlight of our morning, letting the Lord speak to us through his word. I let David know this morning in our pastoral prayer time that I had read some work from Charles Haddon Spurgeon last night before I went to bed. And uh, actually, while I was reading, I was going to bed <laughs> in the middle of it. Um, I started to lose track of what I had read and my eyes were crossing. And if you're like me, uh, I kept going. I wanted to get to the end of the chapter so badly that really the end of the chapter, the, la- the second half of the chapter really made no impact on me. I was just getting through even though I was half asleep. But the front end of the chapter was smacking me in the face because Spurgeon's topic in this particular discussion, this article, was on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our ministry as pastors. And he confessed at the very beginning of this article, and really it's a lecture that he gave to his pastoral students. And I want to confess before you this morning, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Say, well, that's that's kind of easy. Of course, we believe in the Holy Spirit. No, I believe in the Holy Spirit right now. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired a word for you, perfect, complete and preserved for you and I to know the mind of God. I believe that the Holy Spirit, if you are a child of God, is with you this morning. He's with you. He's here with you. The only person of the Godhead who's here is the Holy Spirit. The Son is at the right hand of the Father. The Father is dwelling in inapproachable light. But the Spirit is here. He's with you. He's going to give you understanding. He's going to convict your hearts. He's going to inform your conscience. He's going to train your minds. He's going to guide you, help you, comfort you. He's going to do all of this because Jesus isn't here. That's the promise of John chapter 14. I believe that the Holy Spirit is with me. He has called me. He has given me life. 
He has given me gifts for His church. He has set me apart to teach and instruct. I have no power. I have no abilities. I have no capability of understanding and communicating the Word of God apart from the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we come together this morning to study Matthew chapter 10. And I trust you're not here to hear Adam teach about Matthew chapter 10. But you are here to hear from the Holy Spirit what He has taught from Matthew chapter 10. Otherwise, we're, we're wasting our time. I'm not Him. I'm just enabled and empowered by Him. And you're not Him. You're just guided and given understanding from Him. So let's approach our Bible as the Spirit's Word to us. He moved the holy men along as they wrote down the Holy Scriptures. This is His Word. He's with us this morning. He's enabling and empowering the teaching. And He is giving you understanding as you respond to the instruction. So let's pray to the Father. And let's voice our dependence and let's approach the Scriptures believing in the Holy Spirit. Father God, we come before you this morning for these next few moments confessing that we do not have the capacity within ourselves to respond rightly to you. To understand the spiritual implications of what we're going to see in your word. We do not have the capability. I do not have the capability to teach your word with any power, with any meaningful intention apart from your Holy Spirit. We are together throwing ourselves before you, Father, and asking for your spirit to be at work in a special way through these moments of study. He has already been with us. He has already confirmed in our hearts what we have sung is true. That we do have a high priest before the throne. He has confirmed the gospel again in our hearts this morning. He has given us the joy that we experience as we give to your kingdom work. He has engaged us even as we have prayed before you, Father. He is helping us pray. And even in our hearts as we groan with with no words to express ourselves, he prayed for us. We're in dependence upon him. We want you to be glorified. We want your son to be exalted. And we want to do all of this, not robbing any of the glory for our own strengths and abilities, but in total dependence upon the Spirit's work so that you receive the total glory. This is for you. We want to hear from you. We want your Spirit to guide and help us. So we ask for it in the name of our Christ who has made it possible. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse number 26, says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. In hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... 
I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the living God for us this morning. Our Bibles assume that we will be persecuted. And we've been looking at this for weeks now, and we're going to continue that look this morning. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, and you don't need to turn there, but I can read it for us. If we go back to Matthew chapter 5, the assumption of the Beatitudes, the assumption of the kingdom citizen's character is that in response to who we are as followers of Christ, as part of this kingdom, we're going to face opposition from the world who does not know our king, who refuses to bow their knee to him, who refuses to obey what he says. They hate him, and we love him. They reject him, and we follow him. Therefore, the assumption is they're not going to like us. Notice in chapter 5, in verse 10, blessed in a way that is only for the kingdom. Joy Joy and blessing are reserved for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul picks up the same theme that our Lord presented in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul picks it up when he is addressing young Pastor Timothy at the church of Ephesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this to Timothy. He says in verse number 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, you've been a part of all of that. You've seen it all. Now notice verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So what Pete, or what Paul tells Timothy in this context is, Timothy, if you join in suffering for the gospel, if you join in taking up the gospel as your life mission, you will suffer. But those who are the phonies, who are the fakes, who are the impostors, they'll just go on and on and on. One of the stamps of a faithful servant of Christ is suffering on behalf of Christ. It's the assumption of our Bible. We read this morning in 1 Peter, and we read last week in 1 Peter the same assumption. 1 Peter chapter 3, which we read last week in our scripture reading. Verse number 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Peter remembers the Sermon on the Mount because he was there. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, now notice this, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter does not say if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, your life should offset the accusation should show your conduct is in accord with the gospel. In today's reading in first Timothy or first Peter chapter four, we found in verse 12, just one page over beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name is Christian, follower of Christ. Let them not be publicly humiliated for their evil, do- evil works and evil um, intentions as a thief and evildoer. But for those who suffer, let them suffer for Christ's sake and bring glory to God. So the expectation for the kingdom citizen who is expected to be a part of the kingdom mission is that there will be persecution for you and I. We spent time this week in our grace group talking about why it is that the majority of us have never suffered persecution. And there are polar extremes in persecution, right? There are those who would say that persecution is only some far out extreme. And there are those who say persecution is any little trip up that we go through in our lives. So persecution becomes that the car didn't start. I'm under persecution. The, the enemy's after me. Um, so in the middle of all of that, there are those who are sharing the gospel and the world is responding with hatred towards them. Because they stand as disciples and slaves of the master, the king. That's the assumption, but most of us have never experienced or have experienced very little of that persecution. Again, we come back to the hard reality of Matthew chapter 10. Probably the majority of us have not experienced persecution. Because the majority of us have not been active for the savior. We have not really spoken for the king. We have not really boldly taken to the culture and countered their idols and said, these idols are false. This is the one true God. This is the one mediator between God and man. We have not done that, so we have not faced their wrath. That's probably true most of the time. The expectation of persecution demands of everyone who encounters the gospel that they count the cost. You may be sitting here this morning and you may have been here for weeks and thought, Man, I had no idea this is what Christianity is all about. Um, maybe you're, you're a new believer or you're a young believer or maybe you're not a believer and you're here and you're, you're hearing about Jesus Christ and you're hearing about Christianity and what Christians are and this has never crossed your mind. Well, simply said, the kingdom mission for the kingdom citizen demands that there be accounting of the cost. Are we really ready to take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson says part of the process of becoming a follower of Jesus has to be the careful counting of the cost. If someone professes faith in Jesus, anticipating a life of uninterrupted bliss, spiritual victory and considerable popularity, that person may become like the rocky ground in the parable of the soils. But where there has been careful evaluation of the cost. There can be little surprise when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. You remember the parable of the soils, the rocky ground, the seed that hit the rocky ground sprung up. But as soon as persecution came, as soon as the sun came out, it withered and it died. Must count the cost. But this morning's text point to us or point us toward one final reality for us if we are taking up the kingdom mission. The expectation of persecution demands that we count the cost. The expectation of persecution, secondly, demands that we deal with the emotional and natural response on our part, which is fear. Fear. We must deal with fear. 
We must not wrestle with fear. We must kill fear when it comes to this issue of suffering for the sake of the gospel. We must prepare our minds for the mission. We've talked about that for the last several weeks, and now we must prepare emotionally for what is in front of us. Notice in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. He gives us that parable, and then he says, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house Satan, Beelzebul. How much more will they malign those of his household? And here's what happened right after he said that. Right after Jesus says, get ready to be treated with no better treatment than I've received, and they're calling me Satan, and eventually they will kill him. They'll murder him. They'll rip his beard out. They'll spit on him. They'll mock him. They'll smack him with rods. They'll come by as he's suffering and hanging and bearing the wrath of the Father, and they'll, they'll taunt him. And he says, Don't expect anything better than what I've received if you're going to follow me and you're going to be faithful to the kingdom mission. And let me tell you what he saw on the faces of the 12 who were getting ready to go out on the first short term of the kingdom mission. Fear. Fear. And what if we're honest, we feel when we read those paragraphs and we think this is what's ahead of us if I'm actually faithful to the kingdom mission, we feel fear. Jesus says there's no place for fear. In the kingdom mission. It's gracious of our Lord to give us this instruction. And to preserve it through Matthew's record. Because he provides for us here four truths that will battle fear with belief. And this is really the issue with us when it comes to fear in the midst of persecution. Fear is a theological problem. The same as worrying is a theological problem, right? Worry, we've already seen. Do not be anxious. Why? Because there's something true that you should believe and it should overcome your worry. Don't worry about what you'll say because what I'm telling you is true and what I'm telling you is the Spirit of God will give you words to say. So stop worrying because you believe me. Back in Matthew chapter 5, don't be anxious about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. Why? Because your Father cares for your needs. So stop because you believe it. It's a theological issue. And here we find Jesus helping us to understand that when we struggle with fear in the face of persecution, it is a theological issue. It's a belief problem. And he gives us four truth claims in this paragraph that will offset our fear on the kingdom mission. Now, I'm just assuming that you're like me and that you could be in any given situation with someone that you're never going to see again. And you can be terrified of that person. You could be on an airplane. I come into an airplane. Uh, It's a very uncomfortable situation for me at my height. I come in, people are staring at me because my head's tilted so I don't hit the ceiling. I'm carrying my stuff. There's this sweet little old lady who's sitting in a chair. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm thinking she's going to be dreading this. Sure enough, she's looking at me. I come, I sit down. I'm four times the size of this lady. She's in her little chair. It's obvious her grandkids got her to the airport. She doesn't have her iPod. She's holding on to her purse for dear life. She's scared to death of airplanes. She can't even believe that this is actually happening. The plane gets up in the air. And I'm terrified of her. 
I'm terrified. I'm just terrified. I'm so scared. I have a pit in my stomach and my chest is tight. And I think, ah, I should talk to her about the Lord. And I've got my Bible open, hoping she's going to like start the conversation because I want to find out if she's nice about it. I'm scared because this is the natural response. And so Jesus says, don't fear. Don't fear whether the persecution is on an airplane and it's simply being shut down in a conversation or whether the persecution is the shattering of your family or whether in our future in America, the persecution is we're strung up and killed for the gospel. Don't be afraid because these things are true. That's what he gives us in this paragraph. The truth of what Jesus teaches in these next four statements offsets fear in the face of persecution. Truth number one. Verses 26 and 27, we find this, that the truth will be exposed. Stop being scared because the truth will be known. Jesus says in verse 26, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So here is the comforting theological reality that preserves us from knee-knocking, yellow-bellied, no-gospel fear. The truth is going to be exposed. Jesus is pointing backwards, obviously. When we hear them in verse number 26, he's looking all the way back to verse 16 or 17 where he said, beware of men. He's looking at all persecutors. Don't be scared of the persecutors. Why? Well, here's the reasoning. Here's the clear logic from our Lord Jesus. Don't be scared of the persecutors for everything that they do in secret is going to be known. When you're on a plane and you're suffering and no one on the plane knows that you're being mocked and ridiculed for the name of Christ. Here's the reality. There's a day coming when that will be uncovered. And if it has been done in dependence upon the spirit for the glory of God, because of the glory of the gospel, you will receive a reward for your faithfulness. What has been done in secret, whether it was cutting off your fingers and torturing you or the mockery you received at the Thanksgiving table from your family. Whatever the case, if you've been faithful in the kingdom mission, it will be uncovered. What a comfort. You're not alone. You're being watched. You're being watched by one who loves you more than you could ever love yourself. You're being watched by one who loves you with the same love that he has for his son. Who you are cloaked in as his child. Everything that is hidden will be exposed. The truth will be known. The believer will be vindicated. The gospel will be made obvious. What is covered will be revealed. Interesting terms that are used here. Jesus paints a pretty clear picture for us. All of us have been in a situation where we thought we were in private. Isn't that a horrible situation to be in? We have thought that we were changing our clothes in a private spot. Unfortunately, we found out we were wrong. And what we thought was covered was revealed. We've all been in a situation where we thought we were involved in an activity, whether good or bad. 
that was known only to us. It's the myth of privacy, by the way. God knows what's happening. But we thought we were all alone. At least we weren't going to face the outcome or the consequences of someone else knowing what had happened. And we found out we were wrong. And we had to deal with the fact and sit back and realize they know. They know what just took place. Jesus says here, stop being afraid. Don't fear them, though they're going to beat you in the synagogues, though they're going to turn you over to be flogged, though they're going to present you to magistrates and governors and highly, highly impressive people in their culture. Don't be scared because what is done in secret is going to be exposed. The truth will be exposed. What is done to you in secret for the kingdom's sake will be known in public at your reward. What is covered up will be uncovered. The truth will be declared in the end. So notice then what the implication is. Jesus makes this statement and then he, and then he gives a, an instruction. Because of that reality, because we're battling with fear, with the exposure of the truth, the natural response is in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, metaphorically, Say in the light and what you hear whispered metaphorically, Jesus really was not just whispering to the thousands of people that were there with him. But what you hear whispered, that is what you receive privately, proclaim on the housetops. So Jesus says, listen, the truth will be exposed. So don't be afraid. And get bold. Really, God is going to uncover the glories of the gospel. He's going to make the wisdom of men seem as foolishness. And if that's going to be revealed, if that's going to happen, and even those who persecute you will be uncovered as persecutors of Jesus Christ himself and his purposes, then get up on the housetop and start shouting. Jesus is Lord. He's the risen Messiah. He's the promised one of the nation of Israel. He is the savior for Jew and Gentile. Those who will come to the end of their sin and place their faith in him will be saved from their penalty of sin. Jesus will take that penalty upon himself at the cross and will grant to them his perfect righteousness and justification. The housetop idea here is not so much what we think. If you saw me up on my housetop declaring the gospel, you would not call um, church members and tell them that something great was happening. You would call the place with the padded rooms and tell them something not great was happening, okay? I understand that. But in this context, the flat roof area was the area that you relaxed in in the evening. It was the coolest spot. You would go there. You would relax. It was like your patio. And if you went to the housetop in your community and you stood up in your neighborhood, there were all kinds of people around and the rooftops had people on them. So you weren't out of place. Jesus says, what you received in darkness, proclaim in the light. Put the spotlight on it. What you're hearing on the side of a mountain with just us, you go and proclaim this on your kingdom mission and have no fear because the truth will be exposed. Pastor John says this, as his followers study, meditate, and pray over God's word in solitude and in the company of fellow believers, God opens up his truth to their hearts and minds. But what is learned in those places of figurative darkness, hidden from the world, the child of God then is to speak in the light of open proclamation, we, what we figuratively hear whispered in our ear from God, we are then to proclaim upon the housetops. See, this is a secret meeting, if you will. This is dark. It's shady in here. The world is not here. This is comfortable and easy, and we're just, 
We're just sharing information. We're encouraging one another. And Jesus says, what happens inside of these kinds of meetings, we are to go out on the mission and proclaim it to the masses without fear because the truth will be exposed. Those who are disciples and slaves of Jesus will boldly carry on his kingdom mission without fear for they believe it when Jesus says there will be no secrets left unrevealed and no truth left uncovered. Fear is a theological problem. Fear is the result of unbelief. We believe. Lord, help our unbelief. Number two, out of four, and we're only doing two. So this is an important day for lunch, and I understand that, okay? So two out of four today, and the second one is this. The truth will be exposed, number two, the enemies will be destroyed. Stop being afraid because the enemies will be destroyed. Verse number 28, Jesus says to the disciples and to those around him, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, do fear him who can destroy both body or soul and body in hell. Fear is the greatest impediment to action. Governments for a long, long time have used fear as the way to control a mass of people. We can think back. Hopefully we're thinking back and uh, not in any kind of present context. We can think back to governments in our human society that have used fear as the way to keep millions of people doing what they want them to do. If the millions of people decided that they were done with the government, they were done with the rulers, they could easily overrun them and wipe them out. But the fear of what might happen if it didn't succeed keeps them from ever doing that. Fear is the greatest impediment to action. And it comes from what is unknown. I'm scared because I can't see the other side of the wall. I'm scared because it's dark and I'm feeling an empty spot and I have no idea if it's a, if it's a six inch dip or if it's a six foot hole. And so Jesus addresses this fear problem with knowledge, with truth, with theology. For the kingdom missionary who is facing persecution at any level, there is a great trap set for you and that is you're going to have the wrong fear proverbs 29 25 sadly one of the few proverbs that i've committed to memory but it guards my heart proverbs 29 25 says the fear of man brings a snare and that's the idea of a trap for a bird or a small road and it's a snare it, it snags you as you walk through it The fear of man brings a snare, but whoso puts his trust in the Lord shall be safe. And the problem that Jesus is addressing here with the fear in the face of persecution is that the fear is misplaced. The logic is easy. You're afraid of finite body killers. I stand before you as the infinite one who holds life and eternity. Who are you going to be afraid of? Fear of God is the natural response of the one who has seen the glory of Christ. The fear of man is the natural response of all those who either have an unclear or no vision of the glory and power of God. Jesus provides for us impeccable logic to offset our fear in the face of persecution. 
Man's most extreme capability is to kill the body. God holds the power to deal with both the body and the soul. Both the inner man and the outer man are in the hands of God. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, it is told to us in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus, by, by his power, all things hold together. They consist. He, he has his hands so that everything that is stays. If Jesus removes his hands, what is matter to us disintegrates. Life is over. This is the power of God. This is the power of our Christ. Now, I wanted to take you to Isaiah, and I'm not, I don't think we're going to have time to do this, but Isaiah is a fascinating illustration of the fear of man versus the fear of God. Isaiah, here's the story in Isaiah chapter 7. The people of God are terrified about government alliances. They're scared out of their minds because one king is allying himself with another king, and these alliances are starting to brew, and the Gentile nations around them seem like they're getting stronger and stronger, and this thing's going to go really bad. And so they get really scared about government. Know anybody like that? <laughs> um, they're really scared about the government. And God, through his prophet Isaiah, speaks to Isaiah and says, I don't want you to be like the people. I want you to fear me. Why would they fear the government when they claim to follow me? I am the one who establishes kings and rulers and governments. Fear me. Isaiah communicates that is such a powerful picture of the cultural sense of fear of man versus the very real Christian response, the godly response of the fear of God. Good theology versus the fear of man isn't even a contest. We renew our minds with these truths. The truth will be exposed, so don't be scared. The enemy will be destroyed, don't be scared. Hell is very real. The reference here is a real reference to the eternal punishment that awaits those who stand opposed to the gospel of the kingdom. So we must have no fear. Our God is bigger than any persecutor we may run into. Really, he is. And he is aware of our circumstances. Our God is much greater than any puny Christ hater who stands opposed to the message of the kingdom. And he has promised that we, as his kingdom missionaries, who take the message of the kingdom, will be blessed along our way, not just by the comfort of what will happen in eternity, not just by the comfort that we serve an infinite God, but with the comfort that we are the very means by which people will come to a saving knowledge of himself. Romans chapter 10, there is no faith unless there is the preaching of the gospel. And so we go with these comforts and these truths will offset the life of fear on the kingdom mission. I have been to the woodshed this week getting my tail whipped about the fear of man. We're just too scared of people. Way too scared of what they think. Way too scared of what they're going to say about our reputation, about our status. Just way too concerned. Somebody said, isn't there a balance? Shouldn't we be careful about not being offended? Yeah, but that's not our problem, really. I mean, come on, we'll get to those passages when that's our problem. Which one of us wants to say, I'm so bold and so over the top that I need to temper my aggressiveness for the gospel? Not me. I'm not in that group. 
So this passage has been such, such a blessing to me. The fear of God is a theme throughout our Bibles, and I want to end with looking at the book of Proverbs. Let's go back to the Proverbs, to the wisdom literature, and I just want to show you something, and hopefully this is a study technique that can help you in the future too. Not a hard thing to do if you have a concordance or an online Bible concordance. The book of Proverbs has much to say about the fear, not of men, but of God. I thought we'd look at these passages together. Beginning in Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of Yahweh, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Chapter 2 and verse 5. Verse 1 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand what? The fear of the Lord. Say, what is godliness? What is it that makes someone so willing to live their life so entirely for Christ that they are used in unbelievable ways within their culture? What makes it so that somebody actually transforms the entire generation that he lives in? It's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. The book of Proverbs goes on in chapter 3 and verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What makes us so that we are actually turning ourselves away from evil towards righteousness and obedience? It's the fear of the Lord. It's the awareness of who He is in comparison to who we are. It's the awareness of what He has accomplished. In comparison to who we were apart from Christ. Chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate. You say, man, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. But one of the things that is so much a part of my life is that I don't hate sin. I, I actually kind of like my sin. I mean, I feel guilty about it, but I like it. How is it that we can cultivate a hatred for sin? A hatred for disobedience? It's the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of God that teaches our hearts to hate sin. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. You say, I want to be wise. I want to have understanding. There is only one starting place and it is the fear of not of men, but of the Lord. Chapter 10 and verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 14 and verse 2. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his way despises him. Verse 16. One who is wise is fearful, is cautious. Same word. And turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. And then in verse 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the snares of death. And we could just go on and on and on. Through the book of Proverbs. Here's the harsh reality that it confronts us. If we are in fact true followers of Jesus Christ. That assumes for us that we will suffer persecution. And if that's the case. We need help. We need mental preparation so that we have the right expectations for our life so that we're not surprised when it happens. 
But we also need the comfort and the care of theology that will offset fear. Because fear will paralyze the mission of the kingdom. Fear of men and fear of persecution is only set aside when there is greater belief in what Jesus has said than in what is unknown before us. Say, why am I so afraid? Because you are fearing man and you are fearing the unknown rather than fearing the God of heaven. And the fear of the God of heaven constitutes belief in his words. The fear of Yahweh is the habit of the followers of Christ. And it is the source of courage in the kingdom mission. Okay, now what? Where does that leave us today? Well, here's just a simple conclusion. Unbelievers that are with us this morning. Whether you wear the cloak of Christianity or not. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you have great cause for fear. Because you will. The word of God promises you. You will stand before the one who holds both bodily life and eternal life in his hands. And if you have rejected Christ, if you have stood opposed to the kingdom gospel, if you've said that's foolishness, if you've said Jesus is not who he claims to be, you will suffer for an eternity in hell. You should be scared. You should be fearful to the point of repentance. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your wisdom. Turn away from your agenda. Turn away from your personal righteousness that you think God ought to notice and give your attention fully to Jesus Christ and believe. Believe that he's the son of God who is the substitute for sinners and you will be saved not just at the day of judgment but even now you will experience the effects of eternal life. Be fearful to the point of repentance, unbeliever. Secondly, believers, you have no cause for fear. Not in the worldly sense of fear. As kingdom citizens and kingdom missionaries, we should expect nothing better than the treatment of our Savior and Master. Fear not, because nothing secret is going to be unrevealed, and because we serve the one who holds life and eternity in his hands. Fear God. But do not have fear in the face of persecution. These are clearly the most simple implications of what we've studied in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. There are two more truths that we're going to come back to next week. The third one is that the missionaries will be watched. Every hair is numbered. Every sparrow is cared for. And you are more valuable than many sparrows. And number four, the faithful will be vindicated in the day of judgment. Unbelievers, fear, repent, and believe. Believers, boldness because of what you believe about God as revealed in His Word through the message of His Son. Father, thank You for this text, for our brief time of study in it. Thank You for the work that these verses are doing in our hearts. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the words on these pages. We believe that they are given from you for us so that we might know your heart, that we might trust your character impeccably, that we might be brought to faith 
in your son and his sacrifice and therefore live lives that would bring glory to you as broken clay pots with a treasure on the inside so that you receive the glory for the power of our salvation. Teach us not to fear. Teach us to believe you more than what the tempter tells us about the persecutors. Renew our minds so that we might walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of grace that has saved us. Father, use your word to teach the unbelieving hearts here this morning, to break them so that they might have eyes to see, ears to hear, that they might respond to the truth. Grant them, grant them life eternal in your son, Jesus Christ, according to your will, we pray. We ask these things, not on our own merit, but with great anticipation because of Jesus Christ.